welcome to the Queen's Church Sermon Podcast. Our church is being built on two vision statements. Jesus is our passion and love is our mission. We hope this message leads you to Jesus and that next week you'll join us in person to experience God's love through this local church. You can follow us online at qns.church. Well, I'm excited that you're here at Queen's Church. If this is your first time here, welcome. We're so glad you've joined us. This is our second week of a series that we have just called simply Christmas at Queen's Church. We're just celebrating Jesus, what he's done in our lives, and the fact that he has come into this world. So I want to turn your attention this morning back to that passage that was read, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to look um, verse by verse at a few different points from that. But I want to start by asking you a question. This Christmas, I've noticed that people seem to be talking, maybe this is just me waking up to this, or maybe this is real, people seem to be talking about Christmas magic and the idea of Christmas spirit more than ever before. Anybody else notice this? Like I heard a guy on the radio also say um, that the Christmas magic is just palpable in the air at New York at Christmas time. And I'm thinking about this, and I'm, I'm going, okay, as a believer in Jesus, I mean, I believe in the supernatural, right? I believe that a man came down as God and lived a perfect life and then was killed and then rose back from the dead. And that while he was here, he was able to do supernatural things like heal people who had been sick for their entire life, raise people from the dead. So it's not weird for me. I believe in the supernatural, right? But it seems like the common everyday person around Christmas time, even though they know that Santa might not be who he, who we think he is, just trying to see if there's any kids in the room. I won't slip that up. Just, just because, uh, you know, they know that. But there's still something about this idea of magic or of um, sometimes they say spirit, right? The Christmas spirit. And my question is, why at this time of year is that something that people look to more than during the, regular, the other 11 months? And I think the reason is because people are looking for something. They're grasping for anything to let them know that, you know, the common everyday interactions that I have with other people, that's not, that's not it. That can't be all this world has. And at Christmas time, they get this feeling, this sense, because so many people around them have this energy and this excitement, right? It's the only way that as New Yorkers, we're not crying and complaining when it's snowing. Because for these few weeks, if it's snowing and you're walking to the train, you go, oh, it's so beautiful. Come January 1st, all that's over, right? It's not beautiful anymore. We're ready for springtime. But everyone's in it together. And we feel this, like the guy on the radio the other day that I heard said, just this palpable spirit in the air. But I want to look at what the Bible has to say. Since I said, you know, before, I do believe in the supernatural. We as followers of Jesus do believe in the supernatural. I want us to look together at Scripture and see, is there something to this idea of Christmas spirit? Because I know you may not have known all three of those languages that was spoken a moment ago when that verse was read, but let me tell you something. If you read that entire passage in English, maybe you followed along in English, it is something out of a fairy tale. 
It sounds so fantastic, so otherworldly, that if it were true, then we would have to say there's got to be something more like Christmas spirit or whatever you would call it. So let's look at this passage and see what is it about this time of year when Jesus, when we celebrate that Jesus has come, that even people who are not believers in God or followers of Jesus, they still sense this, I feel like there's something different around this time. Why is that? Let's look. Um, I want to start with, we're going we're gonna to just see three things from, from the scripture here. And the first one is that um, Jesus' reign, his reign as the king, is filled with joy. So what was happening here in chapter 9 is Isaiah is, ha, has a prophecy coming forth. And in this prophecy, Isaiah is speaking to a people who are oppressed. It says, the part that I read, if you, if you heard a moment ago, talked about gloominess and darkness and anguish. These people have lived a few days of subway delays. You know what I'm saying? They feel that anguish that when you get to the end train and it's skipping all those stops and going the other way over because of all the construction. Or they've come here on a weekend over to 46th Street and what happens every other weekend? Express to Jackson Heights and you got to flip over to the other side. These people know anguish like that. But even more so, they know anguish in a much deeper way than, than we might think of as New Yorkers. What they have been anguishing over is an oppressive enemy, an enemy who has taken them captive and is pushing them down and forcing them to do labor. So they're in slavery and oppression. There is darkness. We know about that in our country, right? All of, none of us lived through it. But even now, so many years later, we know the, the darkness and the tension and the oppression that still our country is feeling the effects of. So that's where Isaiah takes them. He says, with this type of dark, gloomy, anguishing pain, does this good news come? But praise God that there is good news. And the good news for us today, uh, last week we saw that hope is here. The title of the message this morning is, The King is Here. And when Jesus comes as king, here we're going to see in Israel, but then we're going to see at the end of the sermon that this kingship that Jesus has comes not just to Israel, right? But it has come to, it says in the end of verse 1, Galilee of the nations. It has come for all people. It wasn't just for Israel. It wasn't just for women. It wasn't just for men. It's not just for the young. It's not just for the old. It is for all of the nations. Jesus is king. And his reign means things for us today. So first... I jumped the gun a moment ago, but now we're at first. First, his reign is filled with joy. Listen to verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. All right. We don't speak like that. This is poetic language translated from Hebrew from a few thousand years ago, but let me put this in layman's terms. Jesus coming as king brings payday-type joy. 
Jesus is king in your life means payday joy every day, multiplied. What do I mean by payday joy? Oh, you know what I mean by payday joy. You worked 40, 60, 80 hours that week, and you put in the grind, and the whole time you're putting in the grind, there's something coming out of your bank account, right? Because you had to pay the subway fare, and you had to pay the cell phone bill, and you had to pay this and that and that. So you're working your tail off all the while. Your bank account is getting sucked out of. But then a day comes where the boss must pay up, right? And you wake up that morning if you have direct deposit, or maybe you just go to work that day and get the envelope, old school. But either way, you receive that payment into your account. And what happens? Payday joy. <laughs> it's the joy that you get to pay rent one more month. It's the joy that you know you're going to be able to put food on the table for yourself and for your family if you have one. Payday joy has all types of feelings and emotions tied up in it. Sometimes I understand that those emotions and those feelings might be regretful because you might know that you spent too much in the last period on things you didn't need and so payday joy is lessened a little bit. <laughs> or maybe payday isn't as big as it should be or as you want it to be. So even though you're grateful for the payment, you wouldn't say, I necessarily have payday joy like you're talking about, right? But that's why I said the payday joy that Jesus brings is multiplied, and it's eternal. Jesus' payday joy never falls short. There's never not enough of it to go around. His joy that he brings is always more than you and I need. That's why in verse 3, the writer says that the joy has been increased, that the nations have been multiplied, and that we rejoice like the joy at the harvest. Let me tell you something. Have you ever been to a carnival? You know why carnival started, at least in our country? It was around harvest time. You may have even heard a, a harvest festival, right? So what happens is, the whole town, a farming community, is celebrating at the same time because they all got payday at the same time and they didn't get paydays in between all those weeks when they were working. Because when you're a farmer, sometimes the payday doesn't come till the end when you sell all of that corn. So the whole town would sell all of their crops at the same time and they said, we're all experiencing payday joy together. What do we need to do? Let's throw a party together. So he says right here, harvest joy. The harvest joy is when everyone comes together with their paydays, they put it in a big pool, and they go and they rent rides, and they get horses and, and uh, things for the petting zoo and for, for riding the ponies, and they, uh, they get the little ticket booths, and they get, they get all prepped. They got the corn dogs, they got the, uh, the deep fried Snickers. You guys never been to a carnival where I'm from, if you had never had a deep fried Snickers. But the point is, everybody comes together, and it is a joyous occasion. And you can sense, right, what that would be like to not experience payday for months and months and then, or at least weeks and weeks. And then all of a sudden, boom, everybody you know gets it at the same time. What do you do? You throw a party. This is the joy that the king, Jesus' reign, brings to you and to me when? Every day. Every day this joy is for you and me. Christmas the reason that people feel this, uh, these 
um, goosebumps, or as my wife says, chill bumps. Anybody say chill bumps too? Okay, we got some chill bumpers in here. So whatever type of bumps you get, that's when you feel it. The reason you feel people feel that at Christmas, I believe, is because even though they're putting their belief into some fictional characters here and there, right? And and even though the, uh, what they're what they are joyfully celebrating is a little bit misguided, I believe that because all of the church worldwide at the same time of the year is pointing their eyes toward Jesus and celebrating this coming king that it is infectious even to the people around us. And my question for you today, and the question that I've been wrestling with this week preparing the sermon, is what would happen if I was experiencing harvest joy in my soul? Real Christmas joy that says, this is payday. And Jesus has come to bring payday type joy to me every day of the week. How much more amplified would the people around me feel that Christmas spirit? And see, the joy is when I connect that dot for them, right? When I'm the one who tells them the reason that we experience this is because of Jesus. It's not about Santa Claus or Christmas trees or, or twinkly lights, Those things are great. They make the whole setting beautiful. But this is about Jesus. So Jesus' reign, this king that has come, it is filled with joy. And I want you to leave today, no matter how you came in, maybe you don't feel like you have much to be joyful about. I want you to leave today reminded of the joy that Christmas brings. Forget about the hassle of the parties. Forget about the bank account that's low right now, regardless of payday, because of all the gifts you bought. Forget about all that. And focus on the joy that Jesus brings when he becomes the king of our life. Um, You know, the Bible is translated from different languages into English. And uh, so there's different translations that you can go to. One of the um, paraphrases that I go to sometimes is called the message. And it kind of breaks down scripture into a really easily readable format. And I want to read you one of the, um, a really short quote from the message. Here's what it says when you get to um, the end of verse 3, when they're dividing the spoil. It says this, rich gifts and warm greetings. Who likes to get gifts from the rich people in their life? (laughs) Anybody know anyone who's rich who gives you a gift? Well, if you don't, you can imagine you would want a gift from them, right? Although, as we know, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of being uh, tongue-in-cheek because as we know, a lot of times, especially in Scripture, we learn usually the people who don't have much at all are the biggest givers. So I understand that. I'm just, I'm just uh, go with me for the sake of the joke, though. Uh, getting gifts from a rich person who has indisposable income and just really loves you could be a fantastic encounter, right? I'm talking about rich gifts. So with that mindset, that's what God's given you. When God gave us Jesus, he didn't give us a Larry type of gift. If I give you a gift, I mean, it's gonna, it has a limit. It just has a monetary limit, and it might not be as high as you want. But if a rich man gave you a gift, or a rich woman blessed you with a gift, you would receive that with good tidings and great joy for all of my family, right? Because this person who just has Let's just say it's a billionaire. They got millions of dollars at their disposal. I mean, they might throw you a gift worth, let's say, $100,000. Maybe they just buy you a house. 
People can give gifts like that. There are people with that type of income level. The message says that what God is giving us is rich gifts. Not poor people gifts, rich people gifts. Now, don't take the illustration too far. Like I said before, remember, I know us poor people can give. Well, first we know that if we're, if we're in this room in America, we're not poor. There's people much poorer than us. But for the sake of the illustration, God's given us rich gifts, not poor gifts. And then listen to this. He also gives us warm greetings. I mean, I know the people who usually say hi to other people here at Queen's Church. So I could probably, if, if you came in any time before 11 o'clock this morning, I guess that you probably had a warm greeting when you walked in, right? It was Miss Jean or Miss Pat, maybe Miss Marilyn, maybe Cindy. There's some people here at Queen's Church who can give some warm greetings, a big smile, right? And in, in, this, in this temperature outside, uh, an actual hug, which can be physically warm, this is the kingly reign of Jesus, guys. It is rich gifts. It is warm greetings. That's what Jesus came. But he didn't just come. Sorry, his reign is not only filled with joy, but also we see the next verse over, and this one is hope for the captive. His reign brings freedom from oppression. I think some of us might say in this room that you, right now, that you, you feel oppressed. Maybe you feel put down a little bit. You're like, man, Larry, you're excited. I can tell you're excited to preach this message, and, and I'm trying to track with you about this joy, but you don't know what's going on behind closed doors at my house right now. So while I can sit here and I can have joy and I can hear your message, to be honest with you, when I go home, I, I don't know if I can access that joy. That joy feels like it's stuck back over there at Queen's Church, and I can't get to it. That's oppression. That's oppression. But listen, Jesus, the king, is here. And his reign brings freedom from oppression. Isaiah likens this coming victory to that of Gideon. Now, the people in Israel would have been familiar with that. I'm going to remind you about it. In verse 4, he says this, For the yoke of his burden, right, that's a heavy wooden piece of um, farming equipment, the yoke. It's put on top of the oxen to make them, to physically make them plow the field for you, okay? So the yoke of the burden, this heavy load, this physical burden that's real. Jesus is not talking about just spiritual things here. If you say, okay, the spiritual stuff is great, but I need Jesus, I need somebody to break these physical oppression that I have. That's what he's talking about. This is not just about the spirit. So he says, the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Here's what this is about. He's reminding them. It would be like um, in this day and age, if, you, if I said something about, you know, the United States of America um, won a victory today over the oppressor like the victory in World War II over Hitler. That would mean something to you, Right? It would mean to you, oh, wow, somebody was really oppressing some other people because you know history about what happened with Hitler. And so you say, if we want a victory against that person, this, this new person who was like Hitler, then this is something to celebrate because people have been set free, right? That's what Isaiah is doing here. He's reminding them of a victory in the past. And let me tell you how this victory went down if you don't know about it. The victory at Midian over the Midianites. This is a victory that Israel was given by the hand of God through the prophet named Gideon. 
following seven years of ruthless oppression by the Midianites, God called Gideon. He was the poorest man, listen to this, he was the poorest man in the richest tribe. I mean, sorry, the weakest tribe. He was the poorest man in the weakest tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel. He was an unknown prophet. You ever felt like an unknown prophet? Like nobody knows your name? You might watch the TV show Cheers just so you could find, figure, see that maybe there's a fictional place where everybody knows your name? Because you know there's no one in real life who does. That was Gideon, a nameless prophet. Nobody knew him. He was forgotten. He was poor, and he was in the weakest tribe. Three strikes. Time for God to work, right? God called this man to declare war. I don't know if you know how declarations of war go down in systems of government, but I cannot declare war on behalf of the United States of America. That's not how it works, right? I'm the poorest man in the weakest tribe, for lack of a better term. Gideon is called by God to declare war on Midianites. He confesses for the people of Israel. He repents. He he makes sacrifice for them. All, you know, in his little weak tribe house over there with his poor sacrifices. He tears down the idols in the city in the middle of the night. So nobody knew who he was until the next morning. Because he went in and there were Baal idols set up, erected in the city. And he went and he tore them down. It'd be like you declaring war on Wall Street. You're saying it out loud. You're screaming it out loud. Nobody has listened to you, remember? You're the poorest and the weakest. Nobody knows your name. But then you go in the middle of the night and you tear down the New York Stock Exchange. Physically, actually tear it down. People are going to find out your name, aren't they? That's what he did. People weren't listening. So God said, go tear down the idols in the middle of the night. So the, the next morning, they find out, they go and they figure out that Gideon did it. The enemy armies came together and advanced against Israel because of this. But the word of God says, when the enemies advanced, the spirit clothed Gideon. It doesn't say that the spirit loaded up Gideon with all of the swords he needed or the armor. What does it say he did? He clothed him. The enemy army, 135,000 strong, is advancing against all of Israel because of what Gideon did, and the Spirit clothed Gideon. God trims the army that Israel has to make their defense from 32,000 down to 300. You can go read Judges chapter 6 if you want to see how it happens because it's kind of funny. Now there's 300 Israelites with Gideon at their helm against an enemy army of over 130,000. Gideon, following the Spirit's lead, brings victory. How? By doing what God does. Making the things of the world come into perspective for what they really are under his control. With the Spirit's clothes on, Gideon trimmed that army down to 300 of the best 
the most valiant warriors. And then they, in the middle of the night, circled the armies of the enemy with pot-covered flames, torches, broke the pots, the torches illuminated, and the enemy thought, as they looked around their camp and saw, we're surrounded by an army we couldn't imagine how big it is. Because who with 300 people would ever do that? With nobody behind them. So they're thinking there's legions of people behind each one of those torches, and they're about to come. So what'd they do? They scattered. And Israel won the battle. And you know what this brought? God brought 40 years of rest on the people of Israel because of Gideon's following the Spirit's lead. 40 years of rest, an entire generation, no oppression. Israel, uh, sorry, Isaiah says of the coming King Jesus, he breaks the oppressor down like Gideon. What do you feel is the enemy army set against you today? Maybe we touched on it earlier when we were talking about money. Maybe there's not enough, or maybe you don't know how to handle it, and it keeps leaving. Maybe you need work. Maybe it's the relationships that are abusive or neglectful that you cannot seem to get away from. Maybe it's the sin of greed or lust or anger that's just so decaying your soul every time that you can't free yourself from it. Jesus' reign at Christmas, when he comes to the earth, what it means is that he has brought freedom from that oppression. Just like Gideon and his army surrounded that oppressive enemy, Jesus surrounds your enemy. And just as the uh, the Spirit clothed Gideon, the Spirit clothes you by the power of God and leads you to victory. The question for you and me is, with Jesus the King here coming to bring an eternity of rest, not just 40 years, will you and I follow him like Gideon did? God didn't push Gideon into the middle of the city to tear down those idols. He told Gideon to do it, and Gideon obeyed the word of, the God, the word of God. The question for you and me is, will we follow God? Will we obey him? Let's move to the last one, because this is where it all comes to rest, which is what the 40 years happened after Gideon's battle. So Jesus' reign brings joy. His reign brings freedom from oppression. And finally, in verse 7, we see that his reign is peaceful. His reign is peaceful. The fourfold character of the coming king is vital to our celebration of Christmas. Let me read them to you if you missed them earlier. It's right at the end of verse 6. This is, this is who the king is, and he describes it in four ways. So this is the fourfold character of the coming king, King Jesus. Listen to what it says. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. 
Wonderful counselor means that you don't have to tackle this world, the problems that it brings, physical problems, emotional problems, psychological problems. Can I get an amen for that one? Who was kept up last night because of a psychological thing you're messing with? And you don't even know if it's real or not, but it's messing with your mind and you're laying awake at night thinking about it and you can't go to sleep. It's causing unrest. The wonderful counselor means that you don't have to tackle those problems without a guide and a helper. Have any of you ever been to counseling, to therapy before? What is the therapist's purpose? The therapist can't fix your problems. They'll tell you that if they're a good one. But what can they do? They can help you navigate them, right? They can ask you questions about how you're, how you're feeling about that, how you're experiencing them. They can help guide you to, your, to a solution for yourself. But they can't fix it. God sent Jesus to reign as king. And one of his character traits is that he is the wonderful counselor. He has come to counsel you and me. He's also the mighty God. This means that you have the creator of the universe who is over all and is strong enough to fight your battles. Mighty God. Here's the mighty God, Psalm 23. God prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemy. I know you've heard that at a funeral before, but you ever studied it? Go study it tonight. There is a war, a battle going on. And in the middle of the battlefield, God sets a table, a banquet set for the most beautiful guests. And then he says, you're in the middle of fighting the war? Take a break. Come sit down and eat. And you would say, you would say, that's foolish. If I sit down for one second, the enemy is going to consume me, right? How could I sit, much less dine, when my enemy is coming around me from every angle? And the answer is, because you're not the one fighting the battle. You see, Psalm 23 says we sit in the presence of our enemies while, and trust God while he fights the battles. That song, we sang it a couple weeks ago. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. That's the point. We don't physically take up arms to fight the battles in our lives. We sit and dine while God fights for us. He is the mighty God. That's who Jesus is. Second to last one, everlasting father. This means when fear is crippling you, when, that Jesus has brought peace because God is always with you. I've said it before several weeks ago. You know, in the Bible, it says over 300 times, do not fear. And he says that over and over again because he knows we're really good at what? Fearing. <laughs> so he's reminding us, do not fear. But what's his promise after almost every single one of those do not fears? Some form or fashion of, for I am with you. When you were a little kid and you were scared to go outside by yourself in the dark, what would bring you comfort? If somebody went with you, right? Usually it didn't even, ha it might have been your mom or your dad or a brother or a sister or a grandma or a grandpa. And if you ask them, hey, if a, if a mugger comes to try to get your kid, are you going to be able to overwhelm the mugger? And that person probably would say, well, no, because they have a gun or a knife, I'm done. That's, the point isn't that they can protect you. It's just that someone is with you. But see, 
God, your everlasting father, reminds you that he is with you, and then he reminds you of Gideon. And he reminds you that not only am I with you, but I can defeat your enemies. The everlasting father is always with you. You know, God, as an everlasting father, is not a deadbeat dad. Some of you grew up in a house where the dad wasn't there. And when you grow up in a house when a dad isn't there and someone says, you will have an everlasting father in God, you might say, I don't want another father. I'll take an everlasting mother because maybe at least she'll be there the whole time. But see, what God has done is he has got, what God can do is redeem the idea of father in your mind. God can shift around your perceptions of what a father was based on your experience and show you what a father should be based on his character. That's the everlasting father you know. That's God your father. And finally, Jesus is the prince of peace. This means that he goes governmental, right? A prince is over a government. He says, your new governing body is one that has already impeached and remove from office every immoral and ungodly threat from your soul. You were wondering how I was going to work the impeachment into the sermon. There it is. Your new governing body is one that has already impeached, and I added, and removed from office, (laughs) every immoral and ungodly threat from your soul. This prince doesn't just impeach in the house and acquit in the Senate. Can I get an amen? Amen. This prince impeaches in the house and convicts in the Senate and sentences to eternal death by the judge. Every immoral, ungodly, and sinful threat to your soul gets impeached and convicted and removed from office. That's the prince of peace. Because you know what? If you hear nothing this morning, hear this one right here. You will never find peace unless sin is removed from the office of your heart. When sin is the president, or even just a state representative, when sin is present in your heart, you won't find peace. And that's the, that's the damning news, right? It it condemns us all because we all have sin. Paul said it in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you're saying everyone is condemned? Yes. That's the bad news at the beginning of the story of the gospel. But the good news is Jesus comes. The king is here, and he's the prince of peace. He's the prince that removes that sin and gives you the peace that passes anything you've ever understood. It's peace that's even better than sitting on the beach in the Caribbean with your drink of your selection in your hand and a 82-degree sunset falling down past the horizon. It's Jesus brings peace that that can't even compare with. He's the prince of peace. Church, we know why this idea of Christmas magic comes back up year after year, don't we? We know, and then we know that it has nothing to do with Santa Claus or Christmas trees. It has to do with the reign of a new king. 
It has to do with joy-giving, bondage-breaking, peace-instilling king who is here. And it's cause for celebration like we've never seen before. We have all received this payday joy at the same time, and we're throwing a harvest. And this party is not one that lasts for two weeks like a carnival does. It lasts for eternity. The world which walks in darkness has seen a great light. And it's enchanting to them because it's too hard to believe. It can't be true. It's too hard to believe until, until the light shines into your heart and resurrects your dead and hopeless soul. Amen. What are our next steps today? Because this king is here, what do we need to do to learn from this passage to follow him? I want to invite you to respond here in a moment, thinking about two next steps, unless God has already spoken to you with something different. The first one is this. If this has enchanted you before, but you have never followed it, I invite you today to trust Jesus. Like I said, it can only enchant you until it changes you. And once it changes you, you will never be the same again. So if you have never been changed by Jesus, I invite you to trust him today. To come, uh, we'll have some prayer uh, people at the back, you come to them and say, I'm ready to trust Jesus. And we can celebrate with you. Say, come on in, the party. It's happening. It's never going to stop. The second thing that I want to invite you to do today, if you've trusted Jesus, but you've grown weary of celebrating Christmas, maybe it's just like that it lasts too long. Some people grow weary because it's, it's just not impactful because they start November 1st. Maybe you've grown weary of it because of a loss of a loved one during Christmas time or a broken relationship that happened around this time of year. So it's just a negative reminder in your brain. And it's not a happy time. So you've grown weary. I don't even want to celebrate. I invite you today to find joy. Not that the Christmas spirit brings. I believe that if that's your take on Christmas right now, I believe that what Jesus wants to say to you is, you're trying to access the Christmas spirit by the worldly means, by the Christmas songs and the bright lights and the pretty snowfalls. And that's not how to get the real Christmas spirit. The real Christmas spirit comes through the Holy Spirit who is only accessed by Jesus Christ. So if brokenness paralyzes you around Christmas, I invite you to look away from the Christmas tree and look to the Christmas king. He'll never disappoint You'll never grow weary of finding joy in Jesus Christ. We're available to pray with you at the back. You can respond during this next song. Merry Christmas. As Candace said, we won't be having service here next week, just a reminder. We'll be doing church at home, and then we'll be back on January 5th, right here for Queen's Church in the new year. Let's respond now as God is calling us. Trust Jesus. Rekindle that joy away from the Christmas tree. Focus on the King. He is here. He's here for you. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that in our darkness and gloominess, you did not leave us alone. 
God, we're fearful of what would happen if sin was the king of our heart because we've seen its negative effects. We've seen it destroy our lives. We've seen it destroy the lives of loved ones. We felt the guilt and the shame that comes with doing things that are against your name. And God, we are grateful that you didn't leave us in that guilty, shameful place, but you have brought resurrection. So thank you for the king. Thank you that he is here. We celebrate him this Christmas. And we trust you to transform lives and to bring freedom from oppression in our neighborhood, in our hearts, in our city, and in our country, in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.